great. We're rolling. Welcome to another episode of The Unconventional Author. I am your host, Nathan Ogloff. Joining me today is she gets to have the honor of being the first female author to be in this podcast. It's uh, Chloe Cocking, everyone. Um, is, is that actually your last name? Because when we were chatting earlier before the podcast, it said something else. I have a legal name and I have a writing name. Oh, okay. um, I used to work in a, a very sensitive profession and the kinds of things that I write would not have been cool with my sort of professional persona. Um, and I, I've since, I don't work in that li uh, line of work anymore, but um, I've kept the pen name. All right. So Chloe Cocking is the pen name. That's right. All right. Um, yeah. So Chloe writes a lot of urban. I was, so I was checking out your website earlier and I like how casual you are, how very, I guess, um, human you say, because I said in my first podcast that, um, we tend to think of a lot of these authors as sort of like living on a different realm of existence and that they like, almost like they're gods that create these great epic stories and then occasionally you, they you mean we're not <laughs> you, we're not gods well that I, I i that's what i signed up for one day one day when when we all earn our right we can ascend to the realm of greatness ascend um mm -hmm. but okay so <laughs> i guess this is just i guess what i used to think before i i began this crazy venture was um we think of them as occasionally they come to earth and gift us with something they've created. And uh, after looking at your website, it's, it's, it's felt like, okay, this is just an, an ordinary person. This is someone who, you know, just, just like us, who has an imagination and goes about it and does just, just goes out there and makes it happen. Does what they feel in their imagination they want to do. So, um, I guess just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and um, what made you get into writing. Well, I've been a writer since I was able to write. I w was writing stories when I was four. Um, not that anybody was very interested in them or that they were very good. But um, and um, over the years, I've tried my hand at almost everything. I, I wrote a play in my 20s. Um, I was a, a very angsty adolescent poet and even in late childhood I was writing I actually wrote some really awesome Mr. Rogers fanfic um, that's probably something I'm the proudest of um, it's never seen the light of day though yeah um, um sorry you're gonna go on oh and just um in terms of my sort of pedigree I published my first novel in 2017 on Philidae Press, which is a local press out of Victoria, uh, British Columbia, Canada. Um, and uh, I signed a four book deal with them. Uh, so, so far I've put out a novel, a book of short stories and a book of poetry and I'm working on number four. So um, I'm, I'm sort of new to all this. Uh, when you say press, that's a publisher that gets your work out to the world but they just call it a press is that correct or is it something different uh no that's that's exactly it they're a traditional publisher they're just very small 
Tilde, incidentally, is a Gaelic word that means the poet. Sorry, what? What's the Gaelic word that need need? It's Fielde. Oh, okay. And it's uh, it's spelled F I L D H. And it, um, at least I hope I'm pronouncing it right. And uh, apparently translated into English, it means the poets. Okay. Um. So, I, as I said, I, I was just um looking up at your website and you write a lot of urban fantasy so um i kind of have my take on urban fantasy but just for everyone out there um what exactly does urban fantasy mean to you to me it means um there is magic and sort of fantastical elements taking place in a world similar to ours uh, that, um, you know, that's an urban developed world as opposed to high fantasy where people ride on horseback and cook over fires and, you know, have to roll a 20 to get their dodge roll and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, one way I thought you could think of it is if you look at sword and sorcery, it's medieval Europe. And then it's based off of medieval Europe, but it takes what they believed about sorcery and it actually exists in sword and sorcery. So I like to think of urban fantasy as sort of taking our modern day world and then making another world out of it where magic exists. I mean, we don't believe in magic by any means, but like in that it magic exists. So it's kind of like that in a sense, I could almost say that they have, that in common sure yeah i would i would go with that definition yep i'd probably also argue that um i don't know that it's necessary for urban fantasy i mean there's certainly um examples to the contrary that i can think of like the dresden files for example but um a lot of urban fantasy that i've read tends to have a female protagonist and usually a female protagonist that has powers of some kind, like she's a necromancer, or she's a psychic, or she can control people with her mind or something like that. Okay, uh, so why is that? Why is it that um, most of them are female protagonists? Is that, I mean, I don't want to say that they're all written by women or the majority are women, but is there a particular reason for that? Well, from what I've read, um, most of the audience for urban fantasy is female. And so um, something like 75% of the book buying public that, that purchases urban fantasy is female. Um, and between the ages of 18 and, thir and 35. So uh, given that that's who's buying it, it, it doesn't surprise me that the, um, the protagonists have something in, care, uh, something in common with the reader okay um okay so as a guy would you say that there's a lot to be learned from these novels because i mean i write female characters i have them but i want to be accurate i, I want women to go oh hey this is a nice character not like okay this was clearly made by a guy so um would you say there's something to be learned from uh these particular types of genres especially if it's a female protagonist and the author is female would you say that there's definitely something that 
people can learn, male authors could learn, just men in general could learn from this. I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, um, I'll tell you that a character that uh, um, has very much influenced my writing and um, is um, Anita Blake from Laurel K. Hamilton's uh, I think she's on book 25 or 26 now. And the thing about Hamilton is that she's not a great writer, but she does understand character very well. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm often of two minds when I read her. Like, the, um, there's aspects of the prose that I'm like, oh man, it, you should have done it differently. I'm, I'm, I'm not digging this. But on the other hand, her understanding of character is deep and broad. So she's made some female characters that are pretty um, compelling. And they're very dissimilar to um, things that came before it. I mean, and, and I mean, she's really kind of the, the grandmother of, of uh, urban fantasy at this point. Because um, I think the first Anita Blake novel came out in the early 90s. So she's been at it for a while. Um, maybe actually me maybe middle 90s I, I i might may have misspoke but um you know since then lots of others have followed but she kind of blazed a trail and um i think if you wanted to understand some of the perspective of at least some women some of the time they wouldn't it wouldn't be bad to crack the first five or six of those and have a, a sense of them okay um, so, um, because I want to be a great writer, but, um, you said that they're not necessarily well written, uh, how so, because it, I mean, it's good that you can gain from it a perspective of like, this is a good character, but is it just that the plot isn't written well, or what exactly do you mean by you, you would uh, go a different direction? Two, two things. Sometimes on the level of the sentence, what she's saying is, is kind of awkward. If you read it out loud to yourself, it just hits the ear weird. And that tells me that she doesn't probably read it out loud to herself. Um, the other thing is that it, in the context of the Anita Blake series, the, the stories have gotten a little bit turgid and weighed down by... Um, very complicated polyamorous sexual relationships between people and vampires and werewolves and there's all kinds of stuff going on and and then Anita ends up having all these um kind of like weird sexual powers and enslaving people it it, it just becomes very complicated and um so you know my my favorite part of the series so far has been the first I would say seven novels and then after that I'm I'm decreasingly fond of it just because I I don't um I'm uh, paranormal romance isn't isn't my gig as a reader it's not something I want to read it's not something I write okay well I mean it it sounds like there's something to be gained from reading something which I mean because it sounds like she's a successful person and she's made it happen but then you have this storyline which kind of goes in a direction i think a lot of people wouldn't want or maybe it's just a matter of your own personal preference um but if you can look at it and say okay like 
she has interesting characters, but for some reason the storyline's going in some weird direction. So I think what I'm trying to say is it gives me this little ray of hope knowing that if I could avoid that, I could make it happen. I could uh I could make a a, a living off of this. Um Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I mean, she's, she's a New York times bestselling author and has made more money doing it than, than likely I will ever make writing. Um, oh, come so, on. Don't doubt yourself now. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't doubt myself. I just, um, I guess what I'm saying is in, in some way I'm my first audience. So I write mainly for me and for my own pleasure. And then, sadly, the rest of the world is secondary to it. And so going into it with that attitude, um, uh, it isn't necessarily people-pleasing. And so it isn't necessarily going to be commercially successful. You know, and I, I, don't, I don't actually mind that part. Well, I think if you're writing something you want to read and that you enjoy that's the way you should go because if you're not having fun writing it then a reader is going to know you weren't and um i was talking with somebody else i think well, it was black feels so long ago but it was uh, last week um talking about how you should you know write the novel you want to read so i think if you do that there's going to be a market of people that want to read it but can't don't have the time to make it because they have prior obligations of their work keeps them busy maybe they are in a position where they can't do it or don't have the imagination for it or maybe they have a family they're raising so they just can't do it but then lo and behold you come along and um you do what they want and they're that much uh more thankful for it in their lives sure yeah i um I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. You don't think they'll be more happy in their lives? Well, I mean, okay. I think it's just because, I mean, coming from my perspective, if I were to just, just write something for people to read, like if someone were to say, oh, detective novels are popular nowadays, you need to write a detective novel to you know make money i mean i could do it but i wouldn't be that into it it wouldn't be what i want i wouldn't would it wouldn't be what i'm thinking about constantly then after a while i would say why am i doing this to make money it just wouldn't make sense i mean if it was just a job i could just go back into construction so right um what i'm trying to say is you say you're doing it for yourself i think that's the first step but it sounds like you you don't agree <laughs> no i i um i do um i just i i agree with you that i think we should write what we want to read that in some way we do it for the love of the game more than anything else and i guess um all i'm trying to say about myself is my focus is on my process and the pleasure it brings me to create something. And then if anybody else happens to like it, so much the better. But at the end of the day, I'm 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 the one that I'm trying to satisfy. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean I've I, I think I can I have a personal um story. I don't want to say personal, but I think I can understand that from my own personal 
point of view because I have written like my second draft of my novel, my first draft. Um, I wrote them and I'm kind of going back to the third draft right now and changing things. But um, the first draft I didn't think was that great, but I had people read it and they said they liked it. And then with the second draft, I had some editor suggestions, but then there's also been stuff I've gone back and redone just because I thought this wasn't that great or it can be better. Or it didn't make sense. Like I'm just, I think being very critical of yourself forces you to notice little nuances that you could say, maybe people won't notice this, but then you also want to not run into, maybe they will notice it. And it's a glaring mistake that you should have, should have avoided. So you go back and you change it. Uh, like, like what I've done. Um, but yeah, in doing that, you find that, okay, it's a bit better. And for, for me personally, when it's better, when I know I'm going in a good direction, I want to keep working on it. I don't want to, I don't want to stop. Right. So, um, when writing your stories, what gets you inspired or what gets you motivated to, um, come up with what you come up with um where do you get your creativity from well that's kind of the fifty thousand dollar question isn't it i i don't really know um uh, i can be inspired by all kinds of things um things i you know bits of conversation i overhear in public in non-covid times um uh, news stories um sometimes i'll watch things on tv and I, I just get so frustrated by how um kind of generic and retread it all is and i'm like oh man they they, they could have had, had something here if only if they'd done this and this and this and this and then i'm like well i guess there's nothing stopping me from doing this and this and this and this so i guess i will um uh, I think I, it drives my spouse a little bit crazy to watch TV with me because everything becomes a literary critique. Uh, we were watching um, an episode of Utopia um, the other night and it drove me up the wall that um, there's, uh, there's these bad guys, they do a murder um, and they uh, try to make it look like this one guy has um, done all the murders and then committed suicide. But the problem is that there wouldn't, there would need to be um, gun residue on his hands, GSR on his hands. And because he didn't actually kill anybody, nor did he kill himself. Um, the, it just seemed like nobody would buy that it was a suicide. If I, if I worked for the, the cops and was a CSI, the first thing I'd be doing is testing the guy's hands to see if it actually was a suicide and if he actually was the one that pulled the trigger. And um, that episode was actually written by uh, Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl. And so I, I was a little bit surprised that there was a plot hole that size in it, because I'm one of those awful people that will sit and, and pick holes in things looking for logical inconsistencies or just... Um, you know, whether or not something passes the smell test. And for me, that didn't pass the smell test. I was disappointed. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine, like, you're just trying to, your husband's just trying to enjoy 
um, the show and you're like, what about this, this plot hole, blah, 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 blah. And, um, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> just let it be. I'm just trying to enjoy it. No. Um, yeah, I guess there's a difference between just watching something and then watching it with the intention of trying to better yourself as a writing and almost studying it and dissecting it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I do that too. Um, I, I found that I would get frustrated and I realized that a lot of the frustration was coming about from the fact that there's a lot of problems with doing this that really just don't have a solution. I mean, the formula for how do you make a good novel, put X into here and Y and you get Z, and it just doesn't work that way. I mean, mm-hmm. in Neil Gaiman's master class, he opens up with saying, oh, this whole process of writing a novel is just trying to convince everyone that you knew what you were doing or you knew what you're absolutely doing the whole time. So, I mean, here's a guy who's very successful in New York Times bestseller, famous, still has his doubts about whether or not he's doing it right and i think the only reason that happens is because it's just there's no this is a problem that just has no solution i still have that problem i wonder if i'm good enough i've been told i am but i don't know maybe maybe this novel will be successful maybe it'll just it'll just go nowhere maybe it's not as good as i think it is maybe i'm full of myself maybe i'm not i don't know well, and he, so here's my question to you about all that. Does it matter? If we're um, good enough, does it sorry, what? Matter? So if, we, if we're good enough as writers, does it actually matter? Well, I mean, I think for me, if this goes nowhere, I would like knowing that at least I understood what a good versus bad story was um i mean being good enough i think it's a it's a factor in being successful at this but i don't think it's a factor in other areas of your life like having satisfaction from it or being happy or necessarily um making a living off of this i mean you have to deal with marketing and that's a whole other beast in its own right um well, maybe I'm not understanding what you mean by does it matter? Well, well, because I mean, anyone can we could we could take anything that that's a multi-million seller and where the you know, the author is uh, filthy rich. Um, the one that comes to mind is James Patterson. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's not that great. And in fact, most of the novels that he puts out these days, the reason he's a machine is he sets it up like a factory. He has ghost writers actually writing most of his books where he's come up with the outline and then he hands it to some kid that just finished an MFA in creative writing and says, here, I'll give you 10,000 bucks to, you know, work on this for six months. Um, and he almost has it, um, yeah, like an assembly line, like they're putting a car together. Um, so you know, am I thrilled with him? Nope. But some people sure like it. And there's enough of them that buy it such that he's um, a very wealthy man. Um, Then there are other small novels on, on um, independent presses that um, I thought were fantastic and should have gotten more play and didn't maybe for reasons of marketing or 
um, their publisher's distribution network or, you know, any of the, the kind of the business side. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that if what we're after is commercial success, I'm not sure that whether we're any good or not actually matters. And um, so I, I try to take the focus off the commercial success aspect and focus more just on the craft itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think marketing doesn't necessarily equate. It's not like if you're X good, it means you're going to be X successful. Um, yeah, I, I've heard the same advice from other people. Just uh, focus on the craft because there's so many other factors that you're just really not in control of. I mean, in the case of James Patterson, it sounds like he's just a good businessman, if anything, rather than necessarily a good writer. Um, I've read one of his books and I think, I mean, even if they're okay, it seems like for me personally, I want something that's going to last. I almost, I want a classic, but it seems like a lot of those you make them year after year and then they just fall by the wayside. Like I don't, I don't see people remembering necessarily any of them a hundred years from now oh yeah no agreed i i don't uh i don't know that he'll he'll be on the anyone's horizon in a hundred years but it would be kind of hard to say who would be well, yeah i mean i i do not possess the gift of foresight goodness um <laughs> <laughs> so i i don't know what's gonna happen in a hundred years but um yeah, uh, knowing what's a classic and knowing what's not. I mean, the only thing I can think of that would be a classic remotely, that was a book in this in, in this 21st century. One, one is uh, Ready Player One, I guess science fiction wise, because I think it says a lot mm. of things about where our society is going, for example. Um, I want to say the Game of Thrones books just because they've been turned into a TV series, but who knows? Um well, they're, I mean, they're pretty fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm a massive fan of, of the Game of Thrones series. And, um, you know, rue the day that I picked up the first one. Uh, because in general, my rule is try not to read a series until the whole series has been written. So if I obeyed my own rule, I wouldn't have started yet. And I'm desperately waiting for the last books in the series to come through because I really want to find out what happens. Um, I'm not convinced that how the books are going to end is how the TV series ended. Um, if only because the endings weren't very well received. So that, that would give me pause as a writer thinking, hmm, maybe I need to do it a different way. Um, yeah, yeah, so um, I, I... Sorry, go sorry, ahead. you go. Um, uh, yeah, I think the Game of Thrones novels, I think probably some of the novels of Neil Stevenson that have been written in the 21st century, uh, certainly his 20th century ones like Snow Crash. Um, I think people will still be reading Snow Crash in 100 years. And um, of the ones that are more recent, um, I didn't like The Fall particularly, but um, 
some of the other ones, Reemdi and um, Seven Eves. Seven Eves actually, um, I remember getting to the end of Seven Eves going, surely this is the first book in a trilogy. Surely he can't be done with this yet. Um, I don't know if you've read Seven Eves, but. You know, I, there's so many authors out there. There's only so much time I have. Here's a good question. Um, real, okay, so for somebody in my position, what's a realistic number of books to be reading per year? How much time do you have to read every day? Well, okay, so... Um, okay, so on the high end, I heard like Malcolm... Gladwell reads like 40 to 50 a year which is pretty much like one a week and mm. I heard that's like excessive um what I'm thinking of is one a month would seem reasonable um but given that I'm not working I'm just working on this I have time at the end of the day like I would say maybe an hour at the most just just to read right Okay, so about an hour a day. And are you are you a fast reader, an average reader, or a slow reader? Uh, well, how, how slow would you say is a slow reader? Um. Sometimes I'll read something and something won't make sense, so I have to go back over it. Right. Or I'll be reading something and then my mind kind of diverts, so I have to go back and try to understand something also. So, but sometimes... I don't get hung up on things and I just read through. But to answer right. your question or to ask you the question, how slow would you say as a slow reader? Um, I would say that probably an average reader is getting somewhere in the range of 60. And this is for reading fiction, not you know, a technical manual that's really dry or complicated or like a physics textbook, but just a general novel. Um, I would say an average reader probably reads somewhere between 60 to 100 pages an hour. And um, a slower reader would be in, you know, 30 to 60-ish. Um, and a fast reader might be, you know, 120 pages an hour. Oh, I'm definitely like a that. slow reader. I think I'm on the, the low end. <laughs> Right. Well, when you think about, um, you know, a standard paperback novel and how long a minute is, if you were, if you were reading 30 pages a minute or 30 pages an hour, that means you'd be taking two minutes a page. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if that sounds like how you do it or, or not. Well, I don't think I'm taking two minutes a page. No. Yeah. You, you're probably faster than you think. Yeah, I haven't actually, maybe I am average. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not reading that like long. Maybe it's not an hour. Maybe it's like just half an hour. Um, I think it also depends on the length, the size of the pages and mm. uh, how big the print is. Uh, I think Kindle yep. pretty. Or do you do mainly e-reading? I would say so. I wouldn't say mainly e-reading. It depends. Like, there's some books I want to read, and I will just get the Kindle version for them and read that. I have these series of fantasy or like like small little fantasy books that I 
my, my parents had when they were younger and they're still in good shape. And so I just, we were going to give them away. And I said, no, 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 no. So I've kept them and I've just been going through those periodically. So I think there's uh, I want to say 20 of them and I've gone through 11 so far. That's been like 11 over the course of over two years. So mm. I'll read, I'll read other stuff like in between. Right. Right. And, um, Oh gosh, I had a question I was going to ask you and then it was in my head and gone. It'll come back if it was important. Curse that draw that 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 evasive question running away from you. Yeah, I have that yes. sometimes. It's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, would you say that this isn't the question, this is a different question. Um, would you say that to be a good writer you need to be a passionate reader uh you know okay so here's i'm going to take an analogy from another industry so i used to work in the video game industry and mm. to me that's like saying to make a good game do you have to be an avid gamer well i've seen people that play video games like crazy and i don't think they would hack it as a game developer whereas I know people that have been game designers, which I think that's as close as you can get within the video game industry to creating content because you're actually thinking of what is the game going to have? How is it going to be fun? How is it going to mm. engage people? But I wouldn't say those people, especially when you get older and you have kids, I would say like they're playing at best. I mean, if they play a game, it's really just they kind of downloaded it, sampled it, maybe done a a quick run through of it but they haven't really absorbed everything in the game depending on how extensive the game is um so i think to be okay so for me to be a good writer i mean these aren't like the perfect analogies but like to be a good writer i would say you have to sample a lot of like to me i it was i'm going to look at the classics i'm going to look at the books that people have said or must reads that you have to read for an author. So, I mean, I was looking at all these Ted talk videos of why you should read a hundred years of solitude, why you should read Don Quixote, why you should read uh, brave new world, stuff like that. So I think you should sample those books. Um, for me, it just, just, you have, you get enough exa examples to get an idea of, okay, I now know, or I have an idea of what good is is and what to do and you just go about that so um yeah I, I don't think you have to do one a week or read a book a week um i think one a month would be fine if it's one every two months uh i think that's also fine too um how would you define an avid reader though um to me, an avid reader is someone who would rather read than watch TV, given their given a choice. They'd prefer to read than to watch TV. Well, it almost sounds to me like it depends on what your market is. Like, are you just making something for an avid reader or are you making something for people that sometimes read and sometimes watch tv and because i think if you're somebody who sometimes reads and sometimes watches tv you're a different 
person than an avid reader. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe there's something about that I'm missing. Maybe I've got someone who listens to this and is just screaming their head off going, oh, you don't know anything. What are you doing? That's wrong. Um, I mean, these are all questions I'm being asked for for the first time. So who knows right. what I'll think of or what will come up uh, as I think about it. Well, plus you're allowed to change your mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think right? maybe I have I say what I say right now, and then ten years from now I look back at it and go like, "Oh, Nathan, you idiot! Why would why would you say that? That's totally not true." Or you might you may say that ten minutes from now. Who knows, right? Like something can seem true in one minute, or or like wisdom, and then you know, upon reflection, maybe not so much. Who knows? That's actually, I think, part of why I'm a writer. That idea that um, you get to live many lives when you're a writer because of the relationship you have to your characters, trying to get inside their heads and see things from your character's perspective. Um, and that's that's exciting to me. Um, living one just one life, the one that I have, is not enough for me. I've got a lot of um, energy and a lot of curiosity. So... Um, writing was probably inevitable yeah well i think it's also you can live some lives that you wouldn't necessarily want to live i mean if you're writing like a criminal or a villain it's like hey what would it be like if i could just kill whoever i didn't like and so that's a fantasy but um you don't obviously don't want to do that in real life so it affords you the opportunity to do things that you may not get to in real life but maybe also can't do in real life Right. Well, it's certainly true that in my novel Blood Rain, my um, my protagonist, Suzanne, has the ability to compel the dead to tell the truth. And so uses um, ritual magic to communicate with the spirits of the dead and can actually kind of in some way beat up ghosts to kind of force the truth out of them. And given that I live in a universe that has no ghosts and ritual magic doesn't work, no matter how hard we try. And yeah, so that's, that's never going to be something I, I get to experience, but I did get to experience it because I wrote her story. All right. I think it's a good time for bad advice. So um, this is something I started in my last podcast and it's a little segment I do. It's called bad writing advice. So um. I ask each guest to, uh, well, starting uh, with the last guy, um, I ask each guest to uh, share some of the worst writing advice they've ever gotten, a writing advice they were told, and it was later just proven to just not work, just be absolutely horrid, appall- maybe not horrid and appalling, but just, just, it was like, where the hell is this coming from? Right. So what's the, word- sorry? The worst advice I ever got was from a creative writing instructor and who was convinced that uh, every writer needs to work with an outline and a plan. And um, you, you might have heard this distinction between planners and pantsers, people who fly by the seat of their pants. And then there's people in between who are plantsers. So I'm a plantser, but the idea that I would need to be completely a planner and work from an outline and have it all um, sort of nailed down before I begin 
man, that, that, uh, that cost me a lot of time in getting my first novel together because I spent so much time working on this outline that um, it kind of took all the juice out of it for me. And so a lot of that work ended up having to be scrapped. Um, it, I should mention it took me 12 years to write my first novel. And I wasn't working on it steadily over 12 years. It was in fits and starts. And that bad advice is part of what slowed me down. So, uh, you know, plan if, if that's your nature, but don't plan if it's not. Jeez, I'd hate it if my novel got... Because, I mean, I've only been working on it. Like, I've been at this for seven years now really only writing it for like five years because the first two years was I wrote some I wrote two short stories and then I outlined and I kind of found out what it meant to write a novel before I just sort of I started writing it um but to think like having some bad advice like that that just cost me 12 years that would uh yeah um I think if we can avoid advice like that it would make people uh do you think maybe if you hadn't had that advice, you would have gotten it done a lot sooner? Because, I mean, to me, for him to say to outline, like, as I'm going back to our previous example, like George R. R. Martin is a pantser. He literally just comes up with it on the fly. And as, you know, as a result, it's some of the best books they've ever, people have ever seen. So, I mean, I don't know if I want to, I'm not, I'm not trying to dive too deep. Uh, if it, if it helps, uh, my examples are way worse. Um, <laughs> but do you think you would have gotten it done a little sooner if had you not heard that advice? Yeah. I mean, some of the delay was me and um, because here's a, here's a very good piece of advice that people have given me uh, that I can pass on, which is work with a deadline and show up for yourself, put your bum in that seat. When you say you're going to write, make sure that you keep that appointment with yourself. Um, because without a deadline, nothing ever gets done. So that was part of my problem in that 12 years is I didn't know that. And then the other part of my problem was that I thought I had to have an outline. So um, working against my nature and without a, without a deadline is a it was the combination of the two that really slowed things down. Um, but yeah, maybe it only would have taken six if I hadn't ever had that terrible piece of advice. <laughs> you know, the other piece of advice that I think is awful is, um, and people love to tell beginning writers this, is show, don't tell. When the reality is there's a time for showing in the novel, but there's also a time for telling. And the wisdom is in knowing when to use which technique. Yeah, I, I've heard that too. And I think I figured it out. Um, for, maybe it's different for every author, but for me, it was you show when it's relevant to what you're trying to convey or articulate in the novel. And you tell if it's like a detail, but it's something that's not really relevant to the overall story. Right. Or it's backstory or, you know, something. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's time for my piece of bad advice. So I, I guarantee you this is way worse. So one person who wasn't a writer, the only closest thing they came to writing was they wrote something or they tried to, it was 
not reviewed very well. Um, he said people were bashing him for it. And then he kind of just gave up and didn't follow writing anymore. But um, he had worked in the film industry as an onset carpenter. So I, I listened to him because I guess he had a close proximity to writers and knew what he was talking about. But we, um, me and him had gone to a McDonald's and I had ordered something from the menu, but I said the menu exactly as it is, instead of saying number five, I think I said, can I have a blah, 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 blah with barbecue sauce or something. I can't remember. Right. And so we went right. and ordered and then he had told me like, Hey, uh, Nathan, why did you read out the menu item exactly as it was? And I was like, I, I don't know. I just wanted to be unambiguous and make sure they knew exactly what I was talking about. Was, oh, but they work here. They know exactly what you're talking about. When you say number five, and I was like, okay, I'll remember for the future. But then he goes on and says, you know, these little details are important. Um, You know, these little because people notice things like that right and then they say like why is he doing that why why does he read it out that way that's really weird and then he says these are really important things you need to know especially if you're going to be an author um just stuff like that that um didn't make me feel very good it made me think that even if i wrote a good story these little things in life that i do uh were gonna just affect me and ultimately cause any hope of making a living off of this just to fail. And then he also said other things like you should know the intricate, it was something about knowing the intricacies of fine dining, because you might have to go to some rich person and woo him and to promoting your novel for you. It's just an idea I threw out there. So that's, um, that's my bad advice. That's some pretty terrible advice. Uh, thank like you for app agreeing app. with me and i feel better telling other people and having them say what the fuck because it seems yeah, like you really exactly. just came out of left field yeah well i mean with every piece of feedback you've got to consider the source and some sources are not they just don't know what they're talking about i mean opinions are like belly buttons everybody's got one so what yeah. Um, I would say if you're going to take advice from people, you first have to ask yourself, okay, have they written something? Are they an author? Are they a literary agent? Are they an editor or a publisher? Do they work within this industry? And if the answer is no, you take it with a grain of salt. If the answer is yes, they are somebody worth listening to. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, Sounds like you don't necessarily, uh, you have some reservations about that. I, ha I have some reservations about that because when people are working as um, a literary agents, their mind is always on the bottom line. Can I sell this? If I take, if I take this author on as part of my stable, can I, can I market this? Is this marketable? Will people buy this right now? Or actually, will people buy this in two years? Because when you're looking at um, traditional publishing in the mainstream, so one of the big five publishers, um, the book that you're discussing today is not going to see the light of day until like two, two and a half years down the road maybe longer now because of COVID rules. Mm -hmm. So they're in a, a situation where they have to forecast what's going to be a hot seller in two and a half years. And is this novel it? So that's, 
that's great. Um, feedback from that person is great if what you're trying to do is be published by the big five and you know, have a bestseller that has a lot of industry support and makes you famous and all that good stuff. Sure. Yep. Why not? But um, most writers, most artists are not working for that and the, um, or under those conditions. So, and it's not like I have anything against the idea of making a whole big pile of money to roll naked in. Um, it's just not, it's not the most important thing to me yeah i mean i mean definitely you should enjoy doing this first and foremost i mean don't do things just for money because let's be honest there's probably better stuff out there um but i think what i'm trying to say is even people that work in this industry like for example agents even them you should be cautious about what they're saying about the quality of your work um, mm -hmm. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that if you're working in the industry, you're somebody worth listening to more than somebody outside of it who has no experience with it and just has an opinion. Right. Yes, I would agree. Alrighty, that's been bad segments. So, um, <laughs> or your bad, bad writing advice. Probably should, um, in the future, give a little chime in for it you need a little gong or wind chime or something yeah i gotta i gotta i gotta find something in the the future for it so um sorry the the novel you're writing right now is sorry what's it called blood lust no that that's my my first novel was called blood rain that came out in 2017 um and uh since then there's been a book of short stories and a book of poetry um and right now what I'm working on is a, an anthology that's going to have three, um, three novellas in it that are all loosely based on mythology or fairy tales, but told from an um, off-kilter perspective. Well, I try not to talk too much about works in progress because I find that if I over-talk it, then I've kind of gotten it out of my system and it, it doesn't leave anything there for me to write, if you know what I mean. Are you, well, yeah, I've heard similar things. That, I've heard that it's people that talk about stuff are less likely to actually do it than those who just do it and don't talk about it that much. Maybe I'm, a, I'm an exception because I talk about it, but like I still want to get it done. Um, well, I think what, the, I, what I... What I can tell you about uh, this series of, of three novellas is, is one is based on a traditional uh, folk story from Ireland uh, that's about sisters murdering sisters. Uh, one is based on a European fairy tale called The Goose Girl. And one is a reimagining of the Persephone and Hades myth. Oh, I'd like to ask you about the reimagining of Persephone and Hades. But then again, as you said, you don't want to talk about it too much. So, well, that one's already written. It's not, it's not, uh, it's going to the publisher, but it has been written. So that one I could talk about. It's the goose girl. I don't want to talk about because I'm still trying to figure out some things about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, cause, okay. So everyone who's listening, if you don't know, Persephone was a Greek, um, 
it's a Greek myth, and it's about a Greek woman who ended up having to, she had to marry Hades because it was in exchange for something, wasn't it? Like she went to the underworld and then had to stay there. Yeah, uh, well, so the, 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 in a nutshell, the Greek myth is um, the daughter of the uh, earth goddess, the goddess of the harvest. Demeter has this daughter, Persephone, who's only about 12 or 13. And she's out picking flowers one day when her uncle, Hades, who's the lord of hell, um, sees her, falls madly in love with her, and drags her off to hell by her hair and keeps her there. And um, Demeter, in response to this, she wants to get her child back, um, decides to go on strike, and so um, brings about the first winter. So it's an origin story about why do we have seasons in some way, this Greek myth. Um, she brings about winter time, and then other gods get involved because um, hu human beings are dying off. They didn't know winter was coming. They had no concept of it. They hadn't stored food because they didn't have enough food. They couldn't sacrifice to the gods, and that meant the gods were going unappreciated. So that made Zeus very upset. So he got involved and tried to mediate between the two sides. And um, what they came up with was that uh, he had to give Persephone back if, as long as she hadn't eaten anything while she was in the underworld. But the sad part is that she had actually eaten six pomegranate seeds. So the, they split the difference and came up with this idea that she would have to stay as queen of hell for six months of the year, during which time her mother grieves and we have fall and winter. Um, and then she's released from hell for the spring and summer reunited with her mother her mother is happy so the the plants grow and the flowers bloom and all the rest of it that sounds to me like the world's uh first joint custody uh story in some way yeah in some way um yeah so my in my um version of it persephone is not quite as passive so you know, really the two in the, in the whole Persephone and Hades myth, she's sort of um, a chess piece played between more powerful gods, yeah? Um, in this, I've, um, I've tried to make her a character who has a little bit more gumption than that. And um, yeah, so um, what else can I say about it? Um, it's it has a certain amount of comedy in it because uh, there's a certain amount of comedy in everything I write. There's also a certain amount of um, gross stuff in it because there's always gross stuff in what I write. Uh, is So is that, uh, that's not necessarily to shock people, but is that, is there like a more deeper purpose for that, for having gross stuff? Um, I think it's just my it's my point of view or my platform is the world to me is in equal parts grotesque and beautiful and the fact that that's the world that it it has this um sort of dual nature to me seems both tragic and hilarious at the same time so given that that's sort of my headspace it it, it comes out in my writing again and again so those those um there's a kind of unified connection 
between horror and humor uh, in my mind. And so that comes through in my writing a lot. Well, it also sounds to me like that's sort of just what life is in general. It's you got this duality yeah. that one's not really appreciated without the other because it's not like like good doesn't really feel good without the bad to you know justify it i mean for example if you've been working out in the rain all day and you're cold and you're tired it's been a long day when you go home and have a warm shower it's going to feel really nice as opposed to if you've just been in your home all day and you have a warm shower and it's that juxtaposition of things uh so it sounds to me like you're almost kind of doing something like that. Like the gross is there to complement the not gross because it makes the not gross like better at what it's doing in a sense. Or, or maybe, yes. yeah. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily describe this as fan fiction, right? Because you're taking a story that's already been wit written and then doing your take on that. Or maybe you... Yes. Oh, so you're saying that's exactly what it is. Uh, I wouldn't call it fan fiction. Um, I, I've taken the source material of the myth and then gone in my own direction with it. So, for example, the um, there's um, well, in my in my version of the underworld, it's there's ghosts, there's witches, there's imps. Um, and um, Persephone happens to have um, a companion and helper who's an imp who was the run to the litter and so wasn't suitable for being sent to earth to being the familiar for a witch. And uh, so they, they are kind of a, a pair or a team in what I'm writing. And there's, there, there aren't any imps in the original myth. Um, Demeter in the original myth is sort of very mother goddessy in the way that she's often portrayed in in European traditions. So kind of crunchy granola, mother earth stuff. Yeah. And that um, uh, my Demeter is not like that. My Demeter gets into physical fistfights with witches when she has to and um, and makes no bones about it. She's the so it's a, it's a very loose retelling. Let's say that it's a loose retelling. Okay, yeah um yeah the only fan fiction i've remotely thought of and uh it's just sort of just just me throw just just messing around in my head because like okay so the reason i'm doing this the reason i want to create these vast intricate in in-depth worlds is because I have, of star wars i saw that when i was really younger and i was like man i want to do that because before that i thought i would do architecture or engineering i mean i liked watching like bob vila's home again in this old house and this is how they like construct all these buildings but then you know as i said and i i saw star wars and was just like i want to i want to do that so i recently just because of how like you know just because of how much older i've gotten and what i've learned i i kind of just in my head have an idea for a fan fiction uh that just makes some commentaries and sort of the world and like, or the, like the star Wars world in general and sort of like, like if someone were to like contract me to like write a story about it and I could just do whatever I want. Like I know exactly what I would, I would do. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and since there's such a franchise of putting out Star Wars novels, I mean, if you ever wanted to put a proposal together and send a, a first chapter off to um, somebody who markets that kind of thing, um, that would be a, definitely a foot in the door. Indeed, to bring this full circle to where we started, that's uh, Laurel K. Hamilton has written a few um, novels in the um, Star Wars universe. So it, it, is it Laura or Laurel? Laurel. Oh, okay. Laurel K. Ham. Yeah. Mm, maybe, 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 uh, maybe this isn't just an idea. Maybe it's something I can uh, work with. Although uh, Disney's bought the whole thing. And so I don't know if they would like my direction, or if they want me to include certain, although they got the Mandalorian. Eh, this is something I can uh, consider uh well as, as long as the machine of disney is pumping out novels based in that universe for people to buy and read there'll be an opportunity to write them somebody's got to write them may as well be you right maybe um <laughs> it's my podcast and i'll go whatever direction i want but um i'm thinking <laughs> No, it's just, sorry, it's just as we're like talking about this, I'm also thinking like, hey, maybe once I get this draft done and send it off and wait for their feedback, this is something of an idea I can consider. And then, like I said, just go about it in the direction I want, see what happens. If nothing happens, hey, there's just this thing I put together. I managed to take the original source material for something or sorry, like the original source of why I'm doing this and then contribute to it. And uh, that'd be an interesting thing to do. I'd like to know that I was like at least part of giving into that universe. If, if nothing else, it's a, it's a, a valuable exercise for you as a writer. Oh yeah, for sure. It, uh, it's interesting. Like I could even... Because um, if anybody knows me, like I don't just write. I uh, have these videos of these crazy Lego ships I've made in um, uh, what was it, Lego Studio, and so, hey, I could take some of those designs and put them in, and boom, it just all comes together. Yeah, it's a cool idea. Why not? Or dead space. Um, I really... <laughs> <laughs> um, I like this little thing you have on your website. Psst, hey, hey, kid. Yeah, yeah, you. You want to buy a book? <laughs> Are there particular authors that have really inspired you, or um, just really uh, catapulted you into doing this? Um. Well, one, one thing that I read that really excited me, um, and th this is going way back, I think I read it in 2000 or 2001, was a novel by a, a Canadian author. Uh, the novel's called Bitten, and it's a, it's a werewolf book. And um, of course, right now, I can't remember the name of the author. Um, I'm... Oh, okay. Um, 
Kelly Armstrong, my spouse helped out. He was talking to me in the background. Um, yeah, Kelly Armstrong. And she's mainly does young adult novels, although Bitten is one of one of her uh, franchises for adults. Um, I just really liked it. And again, I'm very character driven. So if, if your characters grab me, I will um, stick with you to the end. And her character really, really grabbed me. Um, a little fun fact for you guys. Kelly Armstrong was one of the speakers at Creative Inc. in 2019, where me and Chloe met and were able to get uh, email addresses exchanged and then eventually do this podcast. So many, hey, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. I uh, forgot to mention that and uh, like, like responding to me so many years later because sometimes, no sometimes people forget and sometimes people are like, oh, he's this guy. Uh, I just thought, yeah, or whatever. And then don't respond back, which is going to happen. I've accepted it. <laughs> I know. I think having a podcast is a cool thing. I support that. I'm, I'm a big consumer of podcasts. So actually, interestingly, I had the opportunity to meet Kelly Armstrong. I was actually seated next to her at the dinner on the Saturday night at Creative Inc., and I was able to say, I um, when the whole table wasn't listening, hey, just so you know, you're part of the reason I do this. And I just want to thank you for the inspiration. And uh, she got actually a little choked up. Which I thought was awesome. Yeah. Um. I So when I was searching urban fantasy, just on yeah. Wikipedia, ran, I just found her name random. I was like, whoa, this is nice. So yeah, so I'm I'm I I took inspir inspiration for that certainly. Um, again, I'm a big I'm I love Neil Gaiman. I love Neil Stevenson. I love George R R Martin. Um, I have a whole other reading life as a, a reader of of the literary novel, and uh, I'm a big fan of the 19th century author George Eliot. Uh, which is about as far from me as you could possibly get in terms of product. Um, but I, I like it. Um, what else? Um, yeah, no, I, I would say that those are some of the places I take inspiration from. That and, and uh, mythology uh, anything to do with horror, anything to do with fairy tales. Um, I think there's some deep truths in those sorts of stories. So I try to tap into that. So, so when you say deep truths, do you mean the story is not just a story? It's saying something very fundamental about like our lives and the world we live in. Yes, Absolutely. Or at least the world they lived in, because um, modern fairy tales are are uh, a fair bit removed from. Actually, you know, one of the one of the recommendations I would have for someone who wants to write and is looking for source material is to go look at the earliest versions of fairy tales you can get your hands on before they're they were Disneyfied, um, because they're just gruesome and horrific and wonderful. Oh yeah, like you look at these Disney versions of it, and it's nothing like that. Um, but you're also hinting at something I said, which was I went when I was first starting out with this, 
Um, so it, it sometimes people write a story and it uses elements from previous stories. Like the one example I was thinking of was when I was looking at the IMDb review for The Dark Knight Rises, somebody says it's superheroes on a Shakespearean like level. And I said, okay, well, why is Shakespeare um, credible? I mean, in, because sometimes when you look at this, they just, they use previous and previous examples. And it's like, it's like, okay, so why was Shakespeare like prominent? And then you look at those reasons and you maybe hear the odd, like it has elements of Greek mythology and okay, why was Greek mythology and why were Greek stories like so important? Why are those something we still have to like that, that we study nowadays just to understand it why we do? And so you can't really go back further than the stories, and ultimately, the stories are based on something that happened in real life, and so you start seeing very fundamental aspects of it and then it makes you think like okay well how we discovered every fundamental aspect that there is in life and how we live and what we know and if you think you can come up with something more which i mean it might be a long stretch but then i think you got something going on there so i was trying to go back to the very beginning and say hey is there something else i can get from here is there something that even if I say it again, even if I take these fundamental aspects that were being said in these early stories, can I tell them, but tell them in a different way from my unique perspective, maybe take a modern twist or take modern knowledge and apply it to those perspectives. So um, I know what you mean when you say, look at old fairy tales from like, you know, Germany or England that were like, that are centuries old. Yeah, exactly. Well, and um, I'm a big believer. Um, do you know um, the writer and cultural critic um, Umberto Eco? Yes, I've heard of him. I haven't read any of his stuff, but I know who you're talking about. He, um, Umberto Eco says there's, there's really only two stories. And uh, it boils down to uh, someone goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. But I can go you one better than Umberto Eco and say that those stories um, are actually one story. It just depends on your point of view. Oh, yeah, I guess a stranger coming to town, that is someone going on a journey. Exactly. So that's all about point of view and perspective, right? Um, so that, that, that makes good sense to me on a gut level, um, him saying that. So I keep that in mind, like whenever I'm writing, whose journey is this? Where are they going? What are they trying to get done? Yeah, I, I like that um, quote. It, it, the more I think about it, it's it just, it's, it's so simple, but it sums up so much. Yeah, if you ever have a chance to read um, Echo's novel, um, The Name of the Rose, it's... Um, it's wonderful and it's it's full of tasty little treats. Um, it's a detective story set in a monastery. And uh, one of the things that's lovely about it is that the, the, the main character is William of Baskervilles, which is reminiscent of, of course, Sherlock Holmes um, and the, the, the Hounds of the Baskervilles, right? So there's lots of... Um, 
like like I said, little tasty treats in there for people who, if you've read a lot, he references almost everything in the in this novel. It's also um, I'm told by people who know quite historically accurate in terms of um, how people are living, what they're wearing, what they're eating, um, the kind of buildings they live in. So he's he's put a fair amount of research into it. Um, which I'm pretty passionate about. I like to get those kinds of details right. Even yeah. when I'm writing about something like magic, I I think a lot about if you were really if this really worked, if magic really worked, how would you go about it? What would on the the most basic material level, what would the person be doing with their body and with objects around them in order to make magic happen? And I start writing from there. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like it when they take an historical piece and they are very accurate to the history as opposed to maybe what you've seen with some movies where things just don't happen the way they did or they don't do something that was fully accurate to the um, I mean, most people, I think, if, unless you're a history major, you don't notice it. But it is something that's nice that when you learn about it later on, you find out, oh, yeah, that was accurate. This is how long they took to research it to make sure it was that accurate. Because then you just have a new appreciation for the piece. Yeah, exactly. Um. So, okay. I haven't told anyone this yet, but I might as well put it in here. So, okay, this when I was working in construction, this is something I did. Uh, and then one of this, this temp CSO, which stands for certified safety officer, took a look at it and he was like, I think you got something going on here. So sometimes you get bored when you're running an elevator, there's not a lot going on. And so the elevators are protected with like this insulation just because we're still loading material, but we don't want to damage the elevator behind it. So one day I wrote on the insulation. I wrote something about the gods of construction because it was just messing around, right? And so it basically goes like this. So I start off with this pantheon of gods. And then as I, as I um, talk about them, I'll describe what they look like. So I say, in the beginning, there were the gods of construction, but they grew restless and bored and thus forged into being the trades of the site. And then... <laughs> Okay, well, it's going to get funnier. Just hold on. So uh, the first one was, I called him Jectarius. And he's supposed to be like the head, like king god, because every pantheon has a king. And so I said, Jectarius molded the project managers clean of PPE and ever bringers of the push push. And I say that because you could always tell who was project management because they would step into the elevator and all their gear was clean. Like they didn't have any dirt on them because they just worked in an office. And so right. I say bringers of the push push because they're always pushing people. And then I say, okay, so this next God has the head of a hoist. And if you've ever seen an external construction elevator, they're on the outside of buildings and they're what they use before they have the internal elevator. So I say hoisterian crafted the hoist keepers, ferrymen of trades into the high heights, and so like you're technically a hoist operator, but I would always call us hoist keepers. And then if someone had been there long enough, they were like the master hoist keeper. So at my previous site, cause I had been there the longest, I was like, 
I am the master hoist keeper, and you shall call me master hoist keeper, Nathan. Um, and then like the next god was Shaperia, and okay, so I was referencing like so our property developer at my last site was called Shape, and I had them I was talking about, but I kind of went overboard with the description because I wanted to kiss their ass and have them not get mad at me for what I drew, and so I was like. Oh God! You know, I have the photo in front of me on my phone. I could look it up and just know exactly what they say. Screw it. I'm going to just recite it from memory. So I said, Shaperia birthed the emissaries of homeowners. Um, oh, shit. What did I say? And I said, ever bringers of light and joy. But okay, I'm just going to look up the photo on my phone and see what it actually said. One moment, everyone. Okay, wait, 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 no. Okay, here it is. I got the photo. Okay. Shaperia birthed the emissaries of homeowners, beautiful and wise among all beings of the sight, ever pleasant of nature. And then I have the god of electricians, which is just made out of lightning bolts. And so it says. The power man sparked into life the diligent sparkies, bringers of power and light, loved by all trades, yet feared for the darkness they unleashed if their wrath is earned. So basically, they have the ability to cut power to anyone and then they're screwed. And then <laughs> I have a god of deficiency people, which, like, okay, so when units are getting <laughs> basically, yeah, so when units are getting like near finish there's like little stuff here and there that has to get done and people have to go back so they're just, they're just called deficiency people and so it's cleany made the deficiency people guardians of finished units constant hunters of moronic trade damage and other fuck-ups mr flushy washy brought forth the okay so sometimes plumbers are called turd herders and so i say Mr. Flushy Washy brought forth the turd herders necessary for water, yet ever responsible for leaks and always the harbinger of rot. And so that was a little issue because near my end of my time there, we had all these leaks that just suddenly started popping up out of nowhere. All right, here's the last one. This is kind of interesting. So this is the god of iron workers, and he just made out of iron welder, or iron iron girders, and so. Iron Sabbath welded together the iron workers, great wielders of fire and strength, ever laying the path for the trades to follow upward. And so I didn't know what to call them. So I was thinking Iron Man, and Iron Man's written by Black Sabbath. So I just called it Iron Sabbath. So basically, that was something I thought up. And then one of the CSOs was like, or someone working there was just like, oh, I think you got something here. You should work with this. But um, I don't know the direction <laughs> I would take it. So. A little okay, a little addendum to that. So I wrote that on my elevator, and then I'm not gonna say his name on the podcast, but the, the other elevator guy saw that and he didn't like it because apparently we're not supposed to be writing stuff in like the elevator, even though everyone you saw it, even like the homeowners and like the people that worked for the property developers saw it and they liked it. So what he did is he painted over it the next day, and you can still see it, but not that much. So what I did was one day I had to go run his elevator. So in his elevator, I put this other thing. I, I drew something in his elevator and it was like 
we're just going to say the guy's name is Bob. So I'm going to say, I wrote the tale of Bob and I drew a little picture of him, right? And then I said, for his defilement of the sacred shrine or the sacred. Okay, you know what? I might as well just look up that photo too. <laughs> and we're just, uh, okay. Uh, yes, here we go. Okay. For his defilement of the sacred shine, Bob was cursed. His spirit would forever roam the halls of Brentwood. They say that if you press your ear to the elevator shaft on a cold winter night, you can hear his wails. And I drew a little picture of the elevator shaft in the building with, ah, whale, and like little ghosts, right? And then I said, may the gods of construction have mercy on his forever forsaken soul. So... (laughs) Basically, when you have a lot of free time and an overactive imagination, who knows what you can bring, kids? True, true, fair enough. And there's inspiration in everything, as you've just proven. <laughs> so, uh, all right, Chloe, tell everyone where they can get your books and know the greatness that is Chloe Cocking, Urban Fantasy author extraordinaire (laughs) well you can buy your books uh or you can buy my books on my website which is chloecocking.com you can uh buy them from my publisher's website uh which is uh feelidaypublishing.com uh they're also available at indigo stores and uh, online through the indigo website Oh, and um, some of them you can get on Amazon, but not Blood Rain because they decided to censor it. That's a whole other story that I'll tell you some other day. Oh, they censor? Uh, yeah, yeah. I can always ask you later about the whole Amazon censoring stuff. All right, yeah. Chloe, it's been great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Everyone, this has been The Unconventional Author. I'm Nathan Ogloff, and I'll see you on the next episode.